You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Steve Snyder, who joined Zap as the Chief Executive Officer and Director in 2002, helping to raise nearly $1 billion and at the same time successfully listing Zap on the New York Stock Exchange. He's the founder of Voltage Vehicles, the core of Zap's business operations. Snyder's education and early career in the automotive industry include positions with specialty and fuel-efficient automobiles offered by Honda, VW, Renault, Ford, and more. He is currently the CEO of Homes for the Homeless, where they are combining automotive and modular applications for an effective volume solution to the homeless housing crisis, as well as rapid rehousing for disaster relief victims. On today's show, we talk about what was it like to raise $1 billion in funding? How is it different raising capital from China versus the U.S.? Has the electric vehicle market evolved as one would have predicted over the last 20 years? and possible solutions to solve the homeless epidemic that's growing in the U.S. This and much more today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. So let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Steve, I'm so excited to have you today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, I've been a big fan of yours. I was grateful that I was introduced to you through Dell Christensen, who I've known for years. He's been, I mean, he's helped me and my wife out a ton over the years. He's just this great guy. So the introduction to you, I'm, I couldn't be happier. I'm so excited today, especially after, you know, doing some research and hearing about all your accomplishments and that. But for our audience out there, could you give a little bit of background of your career up until this point? Well, that's uh, well. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate you having me here. My background is primarily in the electric vehicle space. That's where I really started. More of a conservationist. I wasn't really a tree hugger. I didn't believe in wasting any of the Earth's resources, and, and I feel that way today. And I did back then, and and that led me to trying to come up with efficient ways to create transportation. And so I built a passion for electric vehicles. Started in '98. Uh, bringing in electric Volkswagens from Mexico and gas Volkswagens and making them electric. And then I took over Zap, a zero air pollution uh, company in 2001 and uh, sort of launched my career in that, that regard. And it was, it was sort of paved the way for everything else that we're going to discuss here today. Well, okay, let's dive a little bit deeper. You took <laughs> some cars over from Mexico, turned electric cars as if that was nothing. There seems to be a gap between doing that and being the CEO of Zap and raising a billion dollars. Yeah, that was a little, little chore. I had the good fortune of, I was just kind of a lucky sometimes, you know, I made partners with the president of Volkswagen of Mexico and you know, we brought the Volkswagen bug in, which was sort of a vehicle that the world had a passion for. You know, I like being involved in things that there's passion. It seems like every age bracket had a love for that car that Everyone had a relationship with a Volkswagen Bug at some point in their life. I loved the car, brought it in, and Air Resources Board fined me $25 million. I was like, $25 million? You know, I was just starting. I really didn't know what to do at that point. I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to fight the state of California and the Resources Board. And I thought, well, what if I turn them electric and I call them the Lightning Bug and, you know, make friends with these guys? And so, so that's what I did. I tried to get this monkey off my back, and then they, Reduced the $25 million fine to like $10,000 for an administrative fee. I had a moment and I was, you know, thankful. And that's sort of 
launched me into the electric vehicle portion of, of my passion. And I, you know, I looked around for partners that I could find and saw that DAP um, was making bikes and scooters electric. And I said, well, you know, could you take some of this technology and put it into my Volkswagen bug? And that partnership formed. And then I, I decided to take that little company and merge what I was doing with what they were doing. And I took over and brought the cars into the equation. Then we started building all kinds of electric vehicles after that. But that's how the whole thought process started. So then I got to ask, so you started off as the CEO of Zap? That was your position there? No, no, no. I took over. The company was struggling at the time. I brought the cars in, which brought new life to the company because they were building you know, the scooters, which are now quite popular when I came on board. And the scooters are everywhere that, that Zap originated. And what happened was sort of good and bad. In China, the Zap scooters were being knocked off. Well, Zap had brought the first electric bikes and scooters to China. At that time, they became so popular, like Kleenex is a tissue and Xerox is a copy machine, Zap became the electric scooter and bike. When they started to knock scooters off, the company was having a difficulty and they were really struggling. But at the same time, they were made the name famous because they were selling way more than, than Zap was. They were having some warranty issues and things like that. And we changed it up a little bit to something that was a little more regulated. Cars had more oversight and it made more sense. So I brought the cars in. I, I took over as a CEO at that point. And then you know, we uplisted the company and started to raise money and brought in all kinds of different relationships. And in the early 2004, I think we, we were trying to find efficient ways to come up with a product that would meet all the standards of the Volkswagens when they, they were working, right? And then after 63 years of building the Volkswagen, they finally stopped making them. We had that as the business plan. We're like, well, now what are we going to do? So we had this great model and everybody wanted it, and now there's no cars. We looked at something else and put the smart car. And the smart car was originally an electric car, which was a partnership with Swatch, the watchmaker, Mercedes-Benz. They had this great feature of making the car change colors and it's just like the Swatch watch. But the car was so expensive that no one was buying it. And so there was a glut of them. So we thought, well, you know, this is like the perfect electric car because we could use that body and turn that electric and, and a good platform. While we were working on that, we tried to make the gas version of it, which was getting 50, 60 miles to the gallon at that time. And we tried to make that car meet U.S. compliance. Well, it was the smallest car. No one thought it was possible to make that car meet U.S. compliance between air quality issues and safety issues. But we spent about $10 million, raised some money, and, and we made full compliance. And then after that, we took $2.2 billion in purchase orders from a 141 new car franchise dealerships. They were standing in line fighting over trying to get these smart cars. It turned out that they were so unique that because they weren't available in the U.S. You know, at the time. So it was the, the smallest car. We were still working on making it electric because that was you know, what our plan was. But we're like, well, you know, everyone likes this fuel-efficient car, which still fit in our area of being conserving energy. We took $2.2 in purchase orders. And once you have that many purchase orders raising money, became a little easier. That's how we started to be able to raise money. So let me dive a little bit more into that, that 2.2 billion purchase orders. That's a great start. But you raised a billion dollars from both the US side and the China side. How was that 
different depending on what side you're raising the money from. I mean, a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs always trying to raise money, whether it's seed stage or later. What advice could you give them from raising from either side? I never raised money on an institutional level, and that is not my strength. I was always involved in the people that, that I target had a passion for what I was doing were, were the people that I sought to help. When, when someone has a passion, it's a different thing. It was amazing how many, at the time we were, you know, we were trying to save the environment, you know, we were, we were talking about you know, air quality and the carbon footprint and all the things that, you know, was taking place in the world that was bad. And we were trying to do all the things that was good. So the people that helped us raise money, they wanted a return, but it wasn't their first, their first thought process. It was like, I'm doing something good. And, and I want to be part of that. And, you know, on the China side, a little different. The China side, I liked dealing with the Chinese. In some ways, they're more direct and you don't have to dig out thought processes. Maybe it's sometimes a language barrier even, but in so not a lot of adjectives. Hey, you're fat. You no, know, it's, it's you know, diplomacy. You're looking a little tired. You know, you just, you know, just the directness. But I, I really appreciated that directness. I didn't have to figure out where they were coming from. And, and I, I like being direct too. We were able to just talk very openly. We would talk that way about the money too. You have money? Yeah. Can I have some? Talk about what we're doing, obviously. But it really wasn't that much more. It was just being a very direct dialogue and, and actually really qualifying directly. You know, are you capable of investing? One thing I can tell you is that I had more success with one page contracts in China than I did with the lawyerized hundred-page documents that the lawyers got rich and everyone else got tired. In the end, it was about feelings, felt good about each other and the relationship and, and what you were investing in obviously was part of business. You know, that, that was an obvious thing, but two parties felt good and you just created a short document. It was amazing how fast things could happen. I mean, at the end of the day, if somebody's going to sue you, you know, you have a hundred page document or a one page document, still going through the same battle. More arguments would start from going back and forth with the long documents than, than the short ones. And I'm, so I'm a big fan of just coming up with a mutual agreement, keeping it as simple as possible. It's kind of the in and out burger of documents. I had more doing the simple things than I did. The complicated ones were really where I got myself into trouble. Zap was the pioneer in the electric car industry. How have you seen the industry develop? Are you happy with how it's progressing? What are your thoughts on the current EV industry? It's actually progressing as I thought it would. You know, eventually the erosion of the environment was going to put enough pressure on all the mainstream auto manufacturers. General Motors, Ford, you know, all of Toyota, you know, big manufacturers, they have such capacity. And at the end of the day, their capacity to manufacture was there. And so it's evolving to where everyone is making an electric car now. I can see that the vision that I had back then when we were doing simple little vehicles that required no computer technology and lead-acid batteries and very simple battery, battery management systems to computers on wheels that they are today, it's, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me the outcome is as expected. And then there's one instance in China. You were able to purchase 51% of Zhongwei automobile. And this was the first time a foreigner was able to purchase a majority share in a Chinese automobile manufacturer. How did you go about doing that? I've always been one of those type where anything that's a challenge, I'm in. The Volkswagens, they said that there was no way that I could get them into the U.S. legally. And 
I found a way. It was a complicated way, and we did it. And with the smart car, they said there was no way. A lot of naysayers said there was no way you'd ever make that car meet U.S. safety standards. You know, through perseverance, creativity, we, we found a way. We had a thought to own our own factory because we couldn't compete. We thought the only way we could compete is to own our own factory in China, where it's the most cost-effective way, you know, to enter into this U.S. market and, and deliver a product that would be noticed by price point. When we started down the road, there, well, there's got to be a way, right? So there's got to be a way to do it. It was complicated, but a really fourth grade level explanation of it was, you know, I took a 2% ownership in a wholly owned a woofie. For our audience, what's a woofie? A, a wholly owned foreign entity. It is an entity. So then after I took a 2% in a non-related additional entity, we then purchased another 49%. And then we found a way to marry the, the two ownerships of that and put it into Zap. It became the first controlling interest in an auto manufacturer in Chinese history. Ford afterwards did, did the same thing in China, but we were the first to do it, and then they, they followed suit. With all this experience, any learnings from the acquisitions? I made so many mistakes that the Chinese government had hired me as a consultant. The Shishi Island government was on a fast track to replicate the Silicon Valley. So I got invited to this meeting. I was a bit shocked because when I got to the meeting, there was a very serious meeting with Hangzhou government. Um, and they said, we want to hire you as a consultant. And I'm like, oh, great. And then as we were talking, and I'm like, well, how'd you pick me? And they said, well, we picked you because you made more mistakes than anyone else we could find. And you survive them. We're fast-tracking this project, and we don't have time for any mistakes. We would like to take that knowledge and see if we could use it. I became a, a government contract consultant by making bad m and deals and, 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 but surviving them. Oh, yeah, the government's known to always hire the right people, so. It worked out well. It was a bit shocking to, to realize that all my mistakes were an asset. But I'm still here. It is through the grief in life that we learn. As I was learning all these things along the way, was you know, more cocky and, you know, the four corners of a contract meant everything to me and all those type of thought process. But then as you start going through and you have hardship and you do make the mistakes and you realize it's just deal with the, any type of deal, if it's an M&A deal on a, on a very human level, you know, when you can reduce things to a human level, deals can be made very easily. It's if you keep it too structured, sometimes that's, that's where I didn't do well. But when I broke it down to a very personal level, I was able to really identify, you know, what was a good deal, what was a bad deal, and proceed forward with it. A few times I've had some poor judgment and character, and I uh, paid the price for that. But it just makes you do things a little bit, a little bit with more clear head and a little more caution. But I still have the same feeling. It's still about feelings. If, if you're doing a deal, I really make sure you take money from the people that you like and that you can that have you share your vision. If someone doesn't share your vision, that was really one of the bigger mistakes that I made, taking the wrong money. You know, and, and when someone doesn't share your vision, you just can't go forward properly and, and you lose everyone's money. Passion, the vision, those things that they need to be in, in unison. You know, out, out of all the mistakes I think that I've made, that's probably been the worst, taking the wrong money. You get desperate sometimes and you feel like, oh, this is a great deal, or you get greedy. Not even desperate. Sometimes it's just greed. And you think, oh, I'm going to make you know, this partnership's going to make me so much money that. I can just sit back and count. And then the next thing you know, everyone had a hidden agenda and your, your, your greed led the way to make a bad decision. Those two work hand in hand, taking the wrong money or being greedy. 
pull those things out of an equation, you can do an M&A deal. I wonder how many entrepreneurs you're going to save globally just from that five seconds right there. <laughs> Hopefully many. So your relationship, though, with doing business with China is still going on to this day. You're currently president of the TNE group that does a lot of investments here in Silicon Valley. How has that changed over the last administration and the current? What kind of deal size are those? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Tianyi actually is a little more dormant than it was. Tianyi really was blossoming when China was changing power. The USA division of Tianyi Investment Group came to be during that time when diversifying overseas investments became more focused. I was tasked with looking at all types of companies here in Silicon Valley and elsewhere in the United States. Um, to diversify the Tianyi portfolio. Do you think it's going to change over the next few years to go back to kind of how it was before? Or do you think there's still going to be kind of a roadblock divide or a little bit more difficulty than times in the past? It's a tough one because I really felt that it would go back right away. And it hasn't. I think the need for both countries to, to open up a little more is there. The cross-border relationships are very important, and I think that ultimately some common ground that comes comfortable again um, will take place, and because it has to. You know, I'm looking forward to it. I have a lot of thought process on how to keep those relationships going, and at the moment, just simple things, just cost of shipping and other things are just stopping everything. Relationships haven't stopped. And another title you have, Hanzhou. And this is even before we get into Homes for the Homeless. Tell us a little bit about your role as the economic development senior advisor. Well, and that's actually, I was sort of getting ahead of myself there in, in, in the conversation. I, I didn't realize you were asking that, but that really was how I became that role was they sought me out because of all the mistakes that I, that I made. They had all these different infrastructure needs and things that were actually related to things that we were doing in the automotive world and other political avenues that were they were pursuing and construction and other things and technology developments. Not that I had this skill set for all of the things they were asking of me because I didn't, but I did make mistakes that they had brought up. And I guess they did learn from those. And I gave honest input where the mistakes were and things that I might have done differently as the forks in the road came ahead. And they were writing a lot of notes. Most of my position there was really just explaining everything that I did wrong and what I would have done to change it. It wasn't really getting out there and looking at the site projects and looking at project management in a way. It was more really relaying what could go wrong and how to maybe avoid. Okay, now we take it to today, where you're currently CEO of Homes for the Homeless. How did you go from electric car CEO, liaison to the economies of the two greatest world powers, and now Homes for the Homeless CEO? So much inspiration starts from, from grief in your life. You know, inspiration sometimes comes when you either have a fire in your belly or, or you have something that devastates you to your core. And then the passion develops as a result of that. And I'd had a lot, you know, I'd had all kinds of losses in life. I, I was sort of dormant for a couple of years and was a bit reclusive. And then fires happened up in 2017, in, you know, in a tragic way, barely made it out alive. In the, in the fires, uh, living right next to the newest fire station up in Sonoma County, and it 
almost slept through it. And at three thirty in the morning, I opened the front door and I saw the fire station in flames. And I I knew right away that that was a good sign. It, uh, that panic hit, and I got to get out of here. I tried to get out of my garage. The garage door wouldn't open. The fire was it was apocalyptic experience. Ninety mile an hour fire falls just blowing all around me. It was incredibly. Still can't even believe I was in it. It was surreal. Took in a lot of smoke, and I was trying to get the garage open, pulling the little lever for the safety lever, which is not that safe, I can tell you, because it's a really easy thing to bend in the middle of the night in the darkness and pulling it from the side, and it doesn't open. And so the panic starts. So then I tried to pull the garage door open. Smoke started coming in at a quantitative level, and you know I passed out almost from the smoke inhalation. My dog, same thing. We inhaled a lot of smoke. Finally, jiggled the door open, and, and we got out, literally driving through walls of fire to get when there was there was no one else up on the top of the hill. There were no no sirens. There were no no warnings. It was just mountain and flames in every direction, and I was on the top of the mountain. And so this tragedy sort of scars you and inspires you all at the same time. So I, I made it out thankfully. Suffering lung damage, my voice isn't the same. And, and during that time, I, I had to live in a hotel for 18 months. Lost, spent 16 years in Asia and all kinds of great stuff from all over the world, treasures and you know, a lifetime of things you collect. And you know, I had a big house and it was full of stuff. And all my stuff was gone, right? Living in a hotel room for 18 months, trying to get behind a rock and reload. And you know, during that time, I saw this tremendous amount of homelessness outside my my door. And I hadn't realized that Santa Rosa, where I live, had so much homelessness. You know, up on the hill, there wasn't any. I didn't see it. I had a fever one night, and it was raining, and it was cold. I was terribly sick. And I heard all these people outside moaning and crying in the rain. And I thought, sick as I am, if I was out there right now, I don't think I'd make it through the night. That was sort of the aha moment, you know? I thought, well, you know, something has to be done. These people are dying out there. I would be dying if I was out there. And thought about China. And I had the good fortune of meeting with Governor Schwarzenegger twice in China. And he actually opened up many, many doors for me, directly and indirectly. But one of the fascinating and interesting doors were shipping container companies that were building homes out of shipping containers and housing all these people. And this was way before I was thinking about homelessness. I was just fascinated that with a you know, billion and a half people, how China really doesn't have any homelessness. And there's always some mental illness here and there, but not, not to the level we have here. And, and I thought, well, you know, they must know a thing or two about housing people, right? I had visited this container company. I was amazed with the housing that they had made. And they could stack 16 high without any engineering and create hotels in a week. This is amazing. And then the price point was just even more amazing. That's when Dell and I, you know, we started to discuss this cost-effective way that, uh, and Dell was like, well, can we really house people for, you know, for that low of a price? And, and we both had that inspiration. And we've got to put this thought process in and let's see if we can do something. Because, you know, we didn't want to symbolically just try to house a few people. We thought this is a way to do a real solution where you could volume level help people that are you know, experiencing homelessness on a, you know, on a large scale. We had a team of very high-level people, some of them here today. We want to help. Everyone just jumped in and wanted to help. We don't have a single salaried employee even to this day. 
you know, all high-level people, all just helping the whole community. I mean, the sense of community that this has brought has just been amazing. And when, when I was doing electric cars, I felt really good about what I was doing. And I liked the feeling. I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and go to work and do what I was doing. And now, an exponential level. And when you see the, just a handful of people whose lives we've changed by giving them shelter and changing their world, it makes you feel amazing inside. And I think a lot of people want to feel that way, and they don't have an opportunity to do it. We've been trying to offer that as a conduit for people to say, hey, if I want to feel good, how do I do it? We invite them into this world to feel good about themselves and helping others. Really, that's, that's how the inspiration started, and it just quantified. And today we have over a billion dollars in shortlisted on projects in 27 different cities already. And we're doing vocational training for at-risk youth and helping them develop career paths by helping building units for the homeless. And it's been just the most amazing experience. I'm not doing it for the money. I don't take any money. It's just for the cause. Talk about money and how these M&A deals and how you raise things. When you get a cause that's worthwhile, it just, it just happens and it comes to you. And you make mistakes, of course, but but if you can get some of those out of the way, you make a difference. So are there any laws or regulations that are either helping you excel or interfering with the growth of what you're doing right now? Part of my philosophy or thought process in the electric, coming from the electric vehicle space was well, we're helping the homeless. First, I was helping the environment. And, and as someone helping the environment, we were able to get a lot of exemptions on all kinds of things. These exemptions, we were able to get vehicles to the market much sooner than anything else. We're helping the homeless. We're going to get all kinds of exemptions from the government to streamline this process. We thought we could just bring these low-cost containers over from China and you know, solve the whole world's problem in homelessness with hardly any outlay at all. We were recommended by Bloomberg, so we have really the full weight of Bloomberg behind us, which helped a lot. They're phenomenal people at Bloomberg. And they did some research on what we were doing and recommended us to the city of Newark. And Newark was under a code blue emergency. People were literally dying in the train station, living cardboard boxes. They were freezing to death in the middle of the winter. So we thought, no problem. We're going to be able to build some containers, get these people off the street. And it's a code blue emergency. We'll get every kind of exemption you could imagine, and they'll be in shelter right away. We started building units even before we knew what we were doing. As we started to build, we realized that we weren't going to get any exemptions. We had to scrap the first several units that we built because they didn't meet any code compliance that New Jersey was requesting. And we thought, well, but people are, are dying and freezing. And we thought, well, you still have to meet code compliance. We you know, got back behind a rock and reloaded again. And so then we, uh, we partnered up with a group in Texas and we tried to figure out how to make them fully code compliant. In in the middle of COVID, in the middle of winter, in the middle of the holidays, we were tasked with getting these people off the street and meeting full code compliance at the same time. There's so many regulators involved in building a home to full compliance. I don't know how anyone wants to go down that path, but we did have complete cooperation of all the agencies. And that probably was the only saving grace is that everyone did want to help from an agency level. While we weren't getting exempted, we did have cooperation, and we figured out a pathway to, to not only house people that are experiencing homelessness, but to 
take a fully compliant model and make it cost effective. It was difficult, challenging, and learning through a lot of mistakes. Uh, we, we figured out the recipe. If you hadn't had the experience of being the CEO of Zap, you hadn't had that building a company, those hardships and, and that challenge, would you be able to continue with what you're doing now or would you have given up at the first sign of difficulty? Everyone told me what we're doing is impossible when they get it done. The persistence does pay. It, and then without that experience, I, I would have never persevered to this level. Tragedy, mistakes, persistence, all of those things combined create the desire and the fire to move forward and, and, and stay on course. And what are going to be some of the milestones you're going to hit in the next, say, 12 or 24 months? We did a very successful project in transitional housing. And then when others saw what we were doing, we were called by the probation department, Boys and Girls Club of America, the police department, Department of Rehabilitation. All these agencies came in and they started asking things that weren't part of our area of expertise yet, which was to create a program to create vocations for people experiencing homelessness and at-risk youth. Not having that experience, we took that on and it became very successful. And when you talk about feelings, it was a very rewarding experience for everyone involved and very emotional. Just yesterday, we look like we're ready to, to embark on another project, which is affordable housing, again, using shipping containers as a building material, although we're agnostic to materials, but the shipping containers have been something we've really focused on because of the way we can get them to uh, the market quickly. So the next project, which may start like in a week, is affordable housing. We're adding to our area of expertise. And at the same time, we're working on, like I said, over a billion dollars on the short list of cities that have asked us to develop, you know, entire villages for them. I don't want to list all the cities here, but there's 27 of them across the country. Now we're having other countries contact us and we've sort of become like experts, even though we're not, but there's not a lot of experts out there that are doing this. And we're about as expert as is available. We have a group of really high level people there. It's about the people. It's always about great people involved. And these people are all capable. And, and I'm not afraid to take on any size project with the group that we have in our circle. So, so far, not a single city has fallen apart of the that we have. I, I don't know how it will play out. but And before wrapping up, I hear you're also involved in this group called the Family Office Network. What is this organization? Can you tell us a little bit about that? The Family Office Network says pretty amazing network. It's network of about 75,000 family offices, high net worth individuals that across the globe, ranging from 50 million to 500 million in net worth, but not the billion dollar crowd. It's, but you know, these are the people that maybe, you know, made money in a sold an apartment complex or, or maybe they had you know, some good fortune in the stock market or, you know, just maybe a lot of different reasons why they maybe acquired their wealth, but they're in that particular sweet spot. And, and I like that sweet spot because in the billion dollars that I raised, it was that group. And so I have a familiarity with that level. I took on the philanthropy division on a global level for the family office networks just a week ago. And at the same time, I took on the Silicon Valley regional office and the San Francisco Bay Area regional office. Took on that as well. We're sort of a, a dating service for the wealthy. There's a lot of deal flow and my inbox is already 
overflowing with deal flow, having to use my judgment on what looks like a deal and what's worth putting through the network is sort of part of where the skill set may come in there. And matchmaking, all of these family offices that are looking to co-invest certain projects. And and then, of course, my passion in the philanthropy side and seeing not just for homelessness, but it could be for animals and other types of charity events that others may have a passion for. And it is similar to things that improve the, the planet. A little bias towards the homeless side of it, but um, but it doesn't matter if somebody's got a passion for something, we're trying to match make them up with, uh, with the right place. So, I mean, the name of the show, the Silicon Valley Podcast, most of our listeners base, based here in Silicon Valley, how could a startup or an early stage company, how could they get access to this network or what should they know about this organization? It's a phenomenal organization. The access is really, I, I don't know if there's anything better, frankly, in access. If someone is doing a startup and they have a good idea and they put together a good business plan and a, a pitch deck that is enticing, let me look at it. If it gets me excited, I can put it through the network, let the network decide if they want to jump in. Fantastic. And if, I mean, if there's any parting words you'd like to give our audience, now's the time to make it. And if there's any way that our audience can touch on you or find out more what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that? Well, first of all, I just want to restate that anything you do, do what you love, do it with passion, partner up with only people that think the same way you think. Don't compromise in those areas. Those are what get you in trouble, got me in trouble, will get you in trouble. I really think that those, those words are actually wise at this point in my life. For um, Homes for the Homeless, uh, simply reach me at steve, S-T-E-V-E, at homesforthehomeless.org. And that's a number four, not a F-O-R. It's homesforthehomeless.org. If you have something interesting, I'll, I'll respond. All right. We'll have that information in the show notes. And once again, I want to thank Dell Christensen for making the introduction, for all the help that he's given me over the years. I want to thank Sapiens, who were doing this interview live in their facility. Please check it out. We'll also have their information in the show notes. And I want to thank our live studio audience that's here today that are not checking their cell phones, that are very in tune, focused on this interview. So let's give them a round of applause. And with that, I want to say, Steve, thank you again for your time here today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Right. It's great to be here. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.